Welcome to today's Bible study with Pastor Josh Tice. The next time you're in Las Vegas, we'd love to meet you in person at Southern Hills. If you happen to watch us regularly, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and consider sharing this video with a friend. You can support the ministries of Southern Hills by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab. Now, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn how the Bible is relevant in your life today. I really prayed a lot about this passage and what I want to share with you. And I feel like I want to leave you with a lesson that has utterly changed my life. And it leads beautifully from the last two lessons that we learned from Luke 7. The first one was, in crisis, Christ is in control. In crisis, Christ is in control. The next lesson we learned was that faith is the key to freedom. Freedom is found in faith, not fear. And the third lesson that I want to leave you with this summer, and I want you to deeply dig inside of your heart and believe and know, and that is this. Demolition is the prelude to perfection. Can you say that with me and think about it? Demolition is the prelude to perfection. Say it again, say it again. Demolition is the prelude to perfection. If you want to get to perfect, you first have to destroy that which is imperfect. If you want to get to completion, you have to begin by breaking what is there down to the studs. The proposition today, demolition is the prelude to perfection, and we see it take place in the story of two individuals in this story. The two people are vastly different people, but they both have big problems. The first person in the story we're going to see is a very religious man. He's a Pharisee. When I say Pharisee, you say boo, Pharisee. Yeah, this is a bad guy. This is somebody we don't want in our lives. But he, at the time, thought he was a good guy. In fact, he's very wealthy, which he thought meant he was better than people. He was very politically savvy and connected in his community. He was a religious leader, which means God loved him more than he loved the common people. He was the religious leader. The second person was also infamous in her community. She was despised. She was really well known. In fact, if you knew her and saw her, you would immediately knew what she did for a living. And she was infamous, but she was infamous for her sin. She was a wicked, godless person. I mean, somebody, you, even you, and I would look at and be like, I'm, a, I'm bad, not nearly as bad as that person. And so there's two people in the story. The first one, the religious leader who thinks he's better than everybody else, and the sinful woman that everybody knows is less than they are. That's the story, and Jesus interacts with both. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees, when I say Pharisee, you say, boo. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So this Pharisee goes to Jesus and thought he would have pity on Jesus and thought, well, this nice little rabbi that is walking around as a homeless carpenter, I'll invite him over to my house for dinner. And so he does. He invites Jesus to his house for dinner. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Have you ever had a meal with uh, a very powerful or wealthy person? Not somebody with a little bit of money. Somebody who was very, very wealthy and powerful. How awkward maybe that dinner might be. 
how serious and formal that dinner might be. I mean, they take themselves incredibly serious. What folk do you use now? You know what I mean? <laughs> this is the type of dinner that Jesus is at, okay? Very important. Then look what happens. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Alabaster flask. When I say alabaster flask, you go, ooh, alabaster flask. I'll tell you why. It's very impressive in a moment. Verse 38. And, they stood, and she stood at Jesus' feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. Hold on. Did I read that incorrectly? She starts to cry, and she's crying so much, her tears start falling on Jesus' dirty feet. And then the Bible says she begins to wash his feet with her tears. Have you ever been at a dinner where this took place? Anybody? Like, this is odd. Some of you are like, well, it's 2,000 years ago. Maybe they did this every meal. You know what I mean? No, like, this is, this is weird for you. This is weird for them. There's a woman who was not apparently invited to this dinner. She shows up at this dinner. Everybody's fancy. I'm not sure which fork to use. And this woman shows up, and she starts crying. And everybody knows who she is. She's an infamous, wicked, nasty, yucky, disgusting sinner. Nobody at the room likes her. They didn't know how much Jesus loves her. And then the Bible says she starts to cry and she's embarrassing herself and she's crying and the tears are falling on his feet. And she leans down and she starts to wash his feet with her tears. And then... She doesn't have a towel. So she's like, no towel, no problem. I have long hair. And she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. You say, that's, I don't mean to be weird and mean, but that's odd. It was odd then. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And then she takes the oil and anoints the feet with that fragrant oil. When I say alabaster flask, you say, ooh, alabaster flask. Why? Why are we so impressed, Pastor? Because an alabaster flask is a perfume in a very special bottle that would have cost a lot of money. How much would you pay for perfume? Like I want somebody to tell me. Somebody raise their hand and tell me the, the limit you would pay for a bottle of perfume or cologne. Uh, do you mind? Does anybody? Yeah, in the back. How much would you pay for a top, 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 top? How much? What? 1.5 million? <laughs> Did you say that? Sir, I would like to talk to you about the Rise Up Next Building campaign. <laughs> I'd like a serious person to tell me. How, <laughs> how much would you pay? How much would you pay for? Hundred dollars, hundred bucks, right? Give it a C note, nice perfume. For a C note, I'm going to smell nice for you know a solid six months. Very good. Somebody else, somebody say, I'd pay more for that. How much? $30, yeah, this man's like, why buy it at, you know, Dillard's when I can go to Ross? Come on, <laughs> same bottle, same bottle, right? It's just six months old, that's all. Hey, dollar, store. dollar store, baby. I was wondering why you smell that way, Mike. I do, I was like, <laughs> but I like, we like you, you know? Somebody else in the back? Yeah, how much? A hundred maybe, a hundred maybe, so we have a hundred and, what? Oh, 180, One, I feel like, I feel like a, like a, like, like, Auctioneer, sold, 180. All right, now look. 
a bottle of alabaster, uh, a perfume, the fragrant oil in an alabaster bottle, historians will tell us that that would have cost the average individual their annual salary, an entire annual salary for one bottle. It would have been an heirloom passed down from generation to generation. It would have been a way to hold wealth in your family in a long-term manner. It would have been like a piece of art as much as anything. Uh, the, annual, the average annual median income in our community is $31,000 a person. Could you imagine paying a bottle of perfume 31 grand? She takes that. She's crying. She's weeping. It's weird. Everybody's like, what is she doing? She's wiping the hair with the feet. And then she breaks 30. And you can smell it. And everybody's like, what are you doing? Here's what she's doing. She's worshiping Jesus. We're going to come back to that in a moment. When you, by the way, worship Jesus, not everybody in the room is going to understand what you're doing. Nor will they all approve of what you're doing. Look what the Bible says in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were probably, wait, stop. The Pharisee watches the whole thing and the Bible says he speaks to himself. He's talking to himself. People do this. Some of you are like, I don't think people talk to themselves. Well, you just talk to yourself by thinking that. If, you, if you're over there like, people don't talk to themselves, that's weird. You're the weirdo. The rest of us, they, we say things to ourselves. And a lot of times we say it to ourselves before we say it out loud. And a lot of times we say it to ourselves and we decide not to say it out loud. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever said something to yourself and decided, it's a good idea not to say this out loud. How many have ever done this? This guy says it to himself, but the thing is, Jesus can read thoughts. So watch what happens in the story. He says to himself, if this guy, Jesus, was really a prophet... He would know what manner of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and looked at the man and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Awkward. Imagine you're thinking a really bad thought, and Jesus is there. You're thinking something really, you're like, I don't know that I should think this, but you think it anyway. And Jesus looks you square in the eye and be like, hey, we got to talk. You're like, oh, so you, you, you heard that? Yep, okay. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. So he said, teacher, say on, verse 41. There was a certain creditor, and so Jesus, instead of addressing it directly, he tells a story. I love how Jesus is a great teacher. Instead of just slamming him, Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. Jesus says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when he had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, Simon, which of them will love his creditor more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who had been forgiven more. And Jesus said unto him, you have rightly judged. There's two people, Simon. One owes 500, the other owes 50. The, the owner forgives both of them, 50 and 100. Who loves the guy more? The guy who's forgiven 50 or the guy who's forgiven 500? I suppose the guy who's been forgiven more. Jesus said, you're right. People who love God most are not those who have sinned least. People who love God most are those who have sinned the most. 
Is that hard for you to understand as a religious person who goes to church? Perfect people don't love God. Forgiven people love God. Perfect people love themselves because of how perfect they are. They see themselves as having no need of forgiveness. In fact, the cool thing about God is the fact that God finally discovered how great they were. And they have so much to offer God. God, it's about time you picked me for your team. I mean, I'm over here in the back quarter wondering, like, if you recognize the talents of clearly that I've created for myself, and now I know that you're thrilled that finally I'm recognizing you. This is the heart of Simon the Pharisee. He is overwhelmed by how amazing he is and therefore has no love for God because he has all of his love on himself. The woman, on the other hand, is overwhelmed with how sinful she is. And because she sees how sinful she is, she sees how amazing Jesus is. And so because she sees how great he is and how sinful she is, she's overwhelmed by love for God because she realizes how much God has forgiven her. Two people, two different reactions to God. And then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, oh, this is interesting. He looks at the woman and he talks to Simon. <laughs> Do you see this woman? I entered into your house, Jesus said, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. He's looking at Simon and saying, you didn't even treat me like a guest. And she's treating me like a god. You didn't even care to show a bit of love for me. She has nonstop shown love for me. By the way, this is not Jesus telling Simon, the Pharisee, you need to do more for me like she's doing. No, that's not the point. It's not do more for me like she's doing. He's saying, I can tell you don't love me because you haven't done anything for me. You're here today and you're like, well, what's the point of the message? The point of the message is not do more for God to show God you love him. He already knows how much you love him by what you've not done for him or you have done for him. He already knows. It's like somebody saying, after the spouse has forgotten the birthday and forgotten the anniversary and forgotten the birthday again and forgotten the anniversary, and the spouse looks at the individual and says, you forgot my birthday again. She's not saying, run out and buy me a card and everything will be okay. She's saying, you've already shown me you don't care because you never remember. This is, you say, well, that's really, that hurts my heart. It's supposed to hurt the heart of Simon the Pharisee to point out to us that our love for ourselves is far more than our love for our Savior and that we should never despise the heart of somebody who loves Jesus more than they love their own social awareness. Wow. Verse, 30, verse 47 Therefore, I say to you, her sins, Jesus says, her sins, which are many. He doesn't deny her sins. They are a lot of sins, but they are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those that sat at the table, I love this. He says out loud, your sins are forgiven. And all the people at the table, they again think to themselves, who does this guy think he is to forgive sins? 
He doesn't even address them. He ignores them, and he says in verse 50, then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can I just say, I don't know who's in the room today, but if you've arrived in a very religious place with a lot of religious people, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a messed up person. God knows all the things I've done. You're the perfect person for church. The rest of them can go. You're who this woman is. Do you see? The story is about two people, one a very important religious man, the other a very infamous sinful woman. Now, what does this story tell us about God? And in the next 15 minutes, I'm gonna give you three things this story tells us about God. If you're ready to hear the three things, say amen. amen. Here they are, number one. First thing this story tells us about God, number one, he welcomes authentic displays of worship. Say it with me. He welcomes authentic displays of worship. Say it again. He welcomes authentic displays of worship. What Jesus does is God welcomes authentic displays of worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, part of your life should include authentic displays of worship to God. He expects it and he welcomes it. And we see an example of it with her. We'll notice that her example of worship, there, it's, it's heavily emotional. It's extravagant and it's exemplary. Let, let's talk about all of those. First of all, you'll notice that her worship, and it should be ours, is deeply emotional worship. She's weeping at the feet of Jesus. She's crying at the feet of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were moved to tears at the thought of God and your Savior, Jesus Christ? Specifically, I'm talking to those Christians who have been saved for 5, 10, 20 years. Please don't look at me and say, that's not my personality. Your personality, your personality doesn't worship. I mean, move to tears because of what God has done for you. Like, when was the last time you heard a good Christian song and it just made you cry? One of my favorite hymns, um, songs, old song, I, it, it goes like this. Some of you recognize it. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die to take away my sins. When we get to a place that the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross no longer moves the heart of stone, we have lost authentic worship. When we get to a place where we no longer shed tears over the death of Jesus Christ, 
so that we could one day go to heaven for eternity with him. We have to wonder why it is we've left behind the heart of God. God has given you more than one emotion. Yes, there's the emotion of tears and crying, but there's also the emotion of, of anger. Say, Pastor Josh, when was the last time you got angry and you allowed the emotion of anger to grab a hold of you because it was an act of worship to God? Well, when was the last time you saw the innocence of an individual taken away from them? This week, when you see on the television what you saw and you see innocent children and they're hurt and they're destroyed and their lives are taken away, does it not anger you? A righteous indignation that rises inside of you. And I hope you've not been so divided in your mind politically that a moment you see a tragedy, you begin to see a political argument and not the destruction of human life. Or when we know that the unborn children are being killed in mass in this society and we immediately think of a political argument or a political party or the way that we can defeat a political enemy and we don't realize that the heart of God is broken and we grow angry and sad over what God is seeing in our nation. True worship is emotional. When was the last time you just smiled? Smiling as an act of worship, I... I catch my wife smiling when we're in the mountains. We're in the mountains and we'll go for a walk and she's just walking, her, she's, there's joy that's coming up. Why? Because as an act of worship, she's saying, look at what God created. I find myself smiling when I sit with my children and they're laughing about memories and they're eating dinner. I love to eat with friends and family. It's one of my mo favorite times of worship. I sit and I eat with friends and family with cup of coffee with you and I just find myself just smiling. Why? For me, I'm just thanking God for what he created around me. And I allow my emotion, my joy, my sadness, my anger, my disgust, all of it to be an act of worship to God because he expects and welcomes extravagant forms of worship, authentic worship, who you really are, showing your love for God for what he's done for you. By the way, it's not always easy to show emotional worship without extravagant worship. I told you that that bottle of ointment cost a year's wage. I mean, imagine $31,000 poured at the feet of Jesus. Like, that's a lot of, you say, how can I show that my worship is genuinely extravagant? A few thoughts here. Number one, you show me your budget, I'll tell you what you worship. Like, show me your budget. Like, set up an appointment six months from now, and we'll meet over a cup of coffee, and I'll go through your budget. And just by detailing your budget, I will tell you what's most important to you in your life because you'll spend on what you value most. It's not just your treasure, it's your time. What you spend your time doing. Show me what your schedule was this last week and I'll tell you who you worship. You know, America is filled with people that call themselves Christians who never worship God. They're lying to themselves. Here's a good word, they are delusional. They believe. If you said, what's your religion? Be like, I'm a follower of Jesus. When was the last time you went to church? Uh, two Easter's ago. You're not a follower of Jesus. Let me look at your schedule. Oh, apparently you worship Netflix. You, you think that's harsh. 
it is 100% true. Because worship, authentic worship, is, it's extravagant. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your treasure? Where do you spend your talents? See, some of you have been gifted by God, but you only think about using that talent for yourself. And you don't use that talent for God. There's a man, his name is Bill, Bill the Drummer. Isn't that a great name, by the way, Bill the Drummer? Like, that's his first, middle, and last name, Bill the Drummer. <laughs> Bill the Drummer shows up here every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday. At eight, on his day off, 8 o'clock in the morning, he stays till 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Then he comes back at 5 o'clock for youth group and stays till like 8 o'clock. You say, what does he get paid for that? It's not, a, it's not even that. He literally volunteers and gives away his day on Sunday. Why? As an act of worship, not only his time, his talent, he uses his talent to worship God. You say, but I've got some talents. I don't know. I mean, it might be a little embarrassing to use my talents for God. Like, what if I make a mistake? What if I mess it up? This is for me. I just like to keep this for myself. True, authentic worship is both emotional and extravagant. And it's also exemplary. Meaning, your worship is supposed to inspire others to worship. You should not only be worshiping yourself, your worship, your children, your teenagers should watch you as you worship Jesus and make them say, oh, that's how I worship Jesus. Your spouse should see you worship Jesus and he thinks to himself, man, that's a true worshiper of Jesus. I need to worship like she worships Jesus. Your worship should inspire others to worship in the same way that this woman inspires us to worship. In fact, there's another woman later on in the Gospels who does a very similar act. She breaks a bottle of ointment, pours it on the feet of Jesus. And you know what Jesus says of that woman? Jesus says, there will never be a place throughout history that my story is not told where her story is not told. Meaning, I want everybody in the world throughout history to know how she worshiped me to be an example of how to worship let me ask you a question. Are you worshiping God in a way that exemplifies to others how to worship God? I'll say it another way. If everybody worshiped God the way you worship God, what would that look like? I think about Christians who don't go to church. Again, that's an oxymoron, Christians who don't go to church. I think if every Christian didn't go to church the way you didn't go to church, would you be okay that all the churches shut down? You are to be an example to the world of how to worship God. It should be extravagant. It should be emotional. Honestly, it, it might be a little embarrassing to others, but you're not thinking about them because all you're thinking about is Jesus. You say, but people will be in the room judging me. There are always people in the room judging because they think of all sorts of different thoughts. Their thoughts are about themselves. They're consumed with themselves. They love to judge others. They are insecure. They lack confidence. But what I love about this woman, she's coming in. She's not thinking about anybody but Jesus. And so she comes in and it's just about her and Jesus. What, do we, what does this passage tell us about God? Number one, it tells us that he welcomes authentic displays of worship. Number two, it tells us that he invites you to demolish your life. Say it with me. He invites you 
to demolish your life. Hear me, friend, hear me. Jesus, now somebody say, demolish my life. I thought Jesus loved me. Listen to me. Jesus loves you, but he's not okay with you. This is completely the opposite of the way the world treats you, I know. The world says, we're totally okay with you, but they don't love you. We want you to be you and just be okay with everything you do. Every thought you've ever thought is awesome. Just pay us. <laughs> Isn't the way the corporations of the world are right now? They're like, what do you want us to say? What do you want us to post? Whatever you want us to say and whatever you want us to post, that's what we'll post. Just buy another hot dog. <laughs> we don't love you, but we're okay with you. God loves you. God says, I love you, but I'm not okay with you because what you are is hurting you and hurting everybody else. Now, again, you're making a huge mistake if you're thinking about other people's sin. Let's think about you. He loves you, but he's not okay with you. you. Say, what does that mean? It means the goal of Jesus is not to validate and affirm your sin. The goal of Jesus is not to make you feel better about the mistakes you've made. His goal was not to make the woman feel better about her sin. The goal, the, his goal was not to make the Simon, the Pharisee, feel better about his life. His goal was to come to them and say, hey, guess what? Your life is pretty messed up. I want you to destroy it. See, what's fascinating about God is that sometimes what God does is he brings you by grace into his, into your, into his existence and then he starts chopping away things in your life to make you more like Jesus. Is there anybody in this room that God has had to take something out of your life and you were better for it? Anybody like that? If it is, say amen. amen. Sometimes God comes in and says, boom, I'm getting rid of this in your life. But sometimes God doesn't break it out of your life. Sometimes he hands you the hammer. He says, I want you to get rid of this in your life. Friend, what is it in your life right now that needs to change so that you can follow Christ? Maybe for some of you, you've got some pride you need to get rid of. There is a deep sense of embarrassment and shame for whatever reason it's followed you since your childhood. And you feel to yourself constantly non-confident. You feel insecure and there's a pride that's built up. Some of you, it shows itself with a genuine deep introversion. For others of you, you've created a pompous windbag persona, but it's really just pride. And the only way for you to become what Christ wants you to become is for you to smash your pride. For some of you, it's gonna be a worldview. You've come to the realization if I truly follow Christ, my entire perspective on everything is gonna be completely changed. I mean, everything changes. And if I have to change my worldview, it means that I have to admit I was wrong. And Christ is saying, yeah, here's the hammer, admit it. Pharisee, your life stinks. Sinful woman who's infamous for her sin, your life stinks. It all is a mess, it all needs to go. For some of you who say, man, if I really follow Christ, what that means is I'm gonna have to completely destroy a relationship because he doesn't want me to follow Christ or she doesn't want me to follow Christ. And if I do follow Christ, it's gonna utterly upset the apple cart. And Jesus says, here's the hammer, go ahead, destroy it. For some of you, it's economic and financial security. 
I say, man, if I'm going to, you know what Jesus was asking this woman to do? No longer live the lifestyle that she was living. You know what Jesus was asking this man, Simon, to do? You have to give up on the career path that you've chosen. You've got to follow me. And what Christ does is not come in and say, if you follow me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. I don't know why Christians think that. It's probably because false teachers teach it. Jesus doesn't come and say, follow me and I'll make all of your dreams come true. Jesus says, follow me and there will be a gracious destruction of your perfectly organized world. Here's the hammer, your life is over. And by faith, we are called of God to come in and say, my worldview is no longer, I'm a follower of Christ. My relationships are gone. My finances are over. My pride is smashed. And now I'm a follower of Christ completely everything gets destroyed at the feet of Jesus Christ that's how he becomes the master and you the servant him the king and you the follower which leads us to our last thought and it's the one big lesson I want to leave you with this summer number three Put it on the screen. He deconstructs to reconstruct. The point of Christ in your life is not to destroy you so he sees you foolishly destroyed. The point of Jesus Christ is to allow sometimes external crisis, sometimes existential crisis, and sometimes an internal crisis, and he allows it so that he can completely deconstruct your world so that he can build what you're supposed to become. I know this because my wife makes me watch HGTV. <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you know HGTV? Would you raise your hand? You want? They've got this phrase. They'll go in. These people, they go into these old homes that are a mess and they're going to renovate the homes. You know what I'm talking about? They're going to go in and renovate the homes and they'll walk in and like, the house is destroyed and everything's a mess. And they'll say something like, we got to we gotta strip this thing down to the studs. And often I think, are they talking about me? That's a dad joke. Get it? Stud joke? Dad? All right, very good. All right. What do they mean, strip it down to the studs? What do they mean? What if somebody came in there and they said, why don't we just paint this wall over here and, oh, I see some black mold, just like cover that up. Would they be okay with that, yes or no? No, the only way to get the beautiful mansion it needs to become is to strip all the corruption away. Do you know what God's trying to do in your life right now? He's trying to strip you down to the studs. Some of you remember this process because you've been saved for years and God did strip you down and he built something new. And for some reason over the years, you've allowed some of the corruption to come back into your life. And now you're surprised. I feel like I'm going through destruction again. It's because he's ripping the, the, some stuff out and putting new in. Some of you are just entering this for the first time because you've become a Christian recently. And you're like, man, it feels like God's just crashing things out of my life and asking me to crash things. He is. What is he doing? He has to deconstruct in order to reconstruct. Get, don't give up on the process. And my heart for you as a friend, as a pastor, somebody who has not only been through it, but sometimes, many times, and still going through it, what I'm saying is don't give up on the process. 
Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't give up. Friend, I say all that to say this simply. Jesus Christ wants you to experience great renewed joy. But the only way that's going to happen is for every single man and woman in this room to give up to God the process and say, okay, do what you must. Do what you must. When you give in to the gracious destruction of your perfectly organized world, you will see a reconstruction of a life you could have never dreamed of on your own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer from my heart is for my friends and for myself that you would help every man and woman and teenager in this room that we would grasp the reality of what you're attempting to do in our minds and our hearts to change us and mold us and make us and break us into the image of who you are, not who we once were. I pray that we would embrace the process and not resist the process. I pray we would be grateful even in the destruction and then pray for the reconstruction that is taking place. And now my heart is burning right now for the one or the two or the few in the room who right now, they've been through this process, but somehow you've just unlocked a new room and now they're going through the process all over again. A destruction of this old room so you can build something beautiful there. I pray we would not shut the door of that room. We would bring it wide open to you and let you into every area of our life so that we can be your beautiful house of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for watching Josh Tice's most recent Bible sermon. If you think of someone who may enjoy this one, go ahead and send it or post it today. If you're ever in Las Vegas on Sunday, we'd love for you to stop by Southern Hills and see us in person. If you benefit from this virtual ministry, we'd also like to encourage you to support our gospel efforts by sending a donation to the ministries of Southern Hills. You can do so by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab.